The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. program of Tales of Science Fiction and Fantasy, brought to you by your host, Beverly Prentice. I will be reading from Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine, Analog, Tour, Asimov, and other fiction magazines, and sources from the internet, and hopefully from you. If you'd like to leave a comment about this program, which airs late please drop a line to beyond3x5 at gmail.com. Orbiting Jupiter. She scanned the drab room for something to drink, but the cluttered tables held only paperwork and burnt toast. Lots and lots of burnt toast. Hmm, said Plague, grabbing her attention. She waited tensely for him to say more, but he just snatched up a slimy pencil-shaped creature from a jar, holding several of them, and pressed it to the resume. The creature screamed as Plague raked its nose over the paper, a sound so unsettling, Hortense clenched her armbreasts. When Plague was done writing, he set down the creature and kept reading. At last, when the tension was unbearable, Hortense cleared her throat more loudly. Plague Ganced up. Hmm. Um, you've been quiet a long time, and I just... Hmm. The alien drummed his fingers. I just wondered, you know, if you think humans will be able to join the Galactic Federation. The alien plucked a mint-sized creature from a tin. The creature screamed as he tossed it in his mouth. Yes, well... Well, what... Your pyramids certainly look professional, and your hula hoops seem interesting. The mint creature's screams came muffled through the alien's mouth. This gap here, when you stop going to the moon, care to explain what you were doing in that time? Ah, we made the internet, smartphones, splashed hunger and disease. I know all that. I just wonder why you weren't also going to the moon or any other celestial bodies in your solar system. Ah, well, hmm. She licked her lips. She really wanted some water. It's fine. Moving on. The manager flipped a page. Under skills, you listed language, mathematics, tools... But no shape-shifting, telepathy, quantum hermeneutics, 
Sabokian gravity dancing. I trust you merely forgot to include those. Could you get away with lying? Hortense desperately wanted humanity to join the Federation. The windfall of technologies would be incredible. No doubt these aliens had cured aging, perfected virtual reality, and achieved staggering abundance. She just had to fib a little if it meant getting her species a seat at the cosmic table. But what if the aliens found out she was lying? Would they boot her from an airlock? Torch Earth like a weed? Swallowing her fear, she went for it. Yes, uh, we forgot to include those. The manager frowned. That's too bad. We greatly dislike Zabokian gravity dancing. Shoot. The alien flipped to another page before she could think of a save. Where do you see your species in, say, a thousand years? Plag swallowed the mint creature and tossed another in his mouth. Not Zabokian quality gravity dancing, she joked nervously. That's good to hear, he said solemnly. A thousand years? Phew, that's a long time. Expect we'll be voyaging across the stars by then. As for Earth, I'm sure climate change will be solved long before then. When I was president of France, climate change? I thought you'd reached the nuclear age. We have. No species with fusion reactors still suffers from climate change. You must be twisting my spinal claw. We don't have fusion reactors, she almost said, then grabbed an excuse. We're still transitioning to them. I'm sure you know how slow bureaucracy can be. The alien sighed, nodding. The eternal enemy. Well, human. I can't say I'm flattened with awe by your species' achievements. Oh, no. Listen, before you decide whether to let us join, just hear me out. We're not perfect, I know. We have pollution, inequality, racism, war. I noticed. But we've been improving slowly. We used to cut out people's hearts to make crops grow. We used to do a lot of bad things. In a hundred years, two tops, we'll be the Federation's poster child for self-improvement. We can do better. Give us this chance. The manager sighed, a sound like dust-clogged air duct. He leaned back in his chair, drumming his fingers and sniffing. Well, see, that's the problem. What is? Unimpressive as humanity is, the truth is that, well, a lot of the Federation's member species are much worse. Hortense was speechless. Just last year, Plague went on, an entire planet was obliterated in a Zabokian gravity dancing accident. Billions of, oh, I forget the name of the species, but billions of them were wiped out. Many, many worlds still indulge in horrific wastefulness. I shouldn't even be sharing this, truth be told, but unfortunately, it seems humanity is a tiny bit overqualified. Hortense was still speechless. If we let you 
join the Federation, said Plagg. It might make other members jealous. Alas, I must turn you down. I don't believe it, she said. All her hopes throttled in an instant. Overqualified? Us? The alien shrugged, popping another screaming mint creature into his mouth. Try us again in a thousand years, after you've had a few more wars, a bit more pollution. In the meantime, we'll keep your resume on file. Alexandra Grunberg also writes, The 758th Floor The apartment complex was infinite, but that distinction seemed theoretically irrelevant on the 758th floor. Elid would not have moved in if it were not for the glowing reviews as the building began to fill from the bottom up. Reports on the Internet stated it was just as beautiful as the illustrations on the posters, as clean and bright and pristine as the color block design and much more practical than its infinite claim made it out to be. There were cafes every 50 floors, periodic shared laundry units, a nursery somewhere in the building, and trash chutes to spare tenants the long walk down. That walk was usually avoided by the elevators, but a month after Elle had moved in, the elevators shuddered to a halt far below her modest studio apartment. An out-of-work order was taped to the shut doors of her floor's main landing, a balcony with a view that made her head spin. She had no idea. Who bothered climbing high enough to tape it? She waited for several months for them to start working again. Then Ella learned to live without them. She emailed her work, and her boss was very sympathetic once she made it clear that she could fulfill her duties writing self-help articles from home. She gave up on delivery and began a friendly customer service relationship with Trayvon, the barista, on the 750th floor. She canceled her gym membership and began jogging up and down the stairs every morning to pick up her coffee, eight floors down. Eight floors back up again. She barely noticed the young man, who she sometimes passed on the stairs, his scowl and scruff half-hidden by the hood of a fluffy robe. She did not judge him for the robe. He deserved to be comfortable in his own home, no matter how high or low that home extended. She was surprised the day he finally spoke, his voice gravelly with disuse. There's no way down, he muttered. Excuse me? she asked, jogging in place. I've walked all the way down, he said, then shook his head. I walked down more than 800 flights. That's impossible. No one could walk down that many flights of stairs, let alone walk all the way back up again. And they were only on the 758th floor. He could not have walked down more than 800 flights without descending into the earth. It is impossible, 
the man agreed, then shrugged. I guess that's the problem with an infinite building. Infinity goes both ways. The man began walking up the stairs. Ellen said nothing, but continued down the stairs, avoiding the view from the balcony landing on the 750th floor as she walked down a long hall, identical to her own long hall, though this one ended at the cafe. Medium coffee, milk and sugar? Trayvon asked unnecessarily. What floor do you live on? Elida asked. Um, the 748th? Trayvon answered, his practiced smile wavering. Are your elevators broken too? Of course, they all are. All the way down? Elid says. Have you checked? No, said Trayvon. I haven't checked every floor. That's impossible. Because it's infinite, Elid said mostly to herself. It goes all the way down and keeps going. She did not expect Trayvon to laugh. Like the posters, he said, nodding. I'll get your coffee. Elid had forgotten about the posters. Large Art Deco style, the apartment building was depicted as a long rectangle of pure white against a blue background. The clouds at the base and the top of the poster meant that the sections depicted could have been any selection of stories, each with their matching outdoor landings and long hallways. As Ella left, medium coffee clutched in her hand, she stopped at the balcony landing took a deep breath, and looked down. Clouds. She looked up. Clouds. She knew that she had more work to do, an upcoming deadline on an article for deciding which parts of your skincare routine were just taking up room on your vanity. But when she reached the stairwell, she found herself spiraling down. She stopped every dozen or so floors to step out onto the landings. The only difference on each floor was the ever-darkening light, the sky changing from bright blue to pink to red to vibrant plum. She looked over the edge of each balcony for cars, for the tops of trees, for any sign of the earth, and saw only clouds. Her coffee grew cold in her hand, and she dumped it in one of the trash chutes. On the 710th floor? Or had she reached the 600s? Ellen did not know. She kept jogging down and down until she reached a landing lit by the gentle glow of safety lights lining the hallways in a world shadowed by the deepest black of night. She looked over the edge of the balcony, and for a moment, her heart lifted with joy. She could see car headlights shining through, clear through a thin layer of clouds. The bright spots of streetlights, the windows of other buildings illuminating the lives of people who lived much closer to the earth. But as she stared at those still lights, willing the cars to move, the clouds parted and her stomach dropped in horror. Far beneath Elid, infinitely below her, she saw the glowing face of the moon, surrounded 
by the clear and bright spattering of stars. Moving on to the next story, this is one by Birgit K. Geyser. G-A-I-S-E-R is how she spells her last name, and it's titled, And Fill Me From the Crown to the Toe. My first thought was that she had a fantastic body. She was a good deal younger than me in her late 20s, I estimated. Later, I learned from her passport that she was 31. Her face was pleasant enough, the nose a bit too strong for my liking, her brown eyes a bit too small. Her hair was long, light brown and wavy. With a new haircut and improved makeup, she would do just fine. The spring production was Macbeth. The Scottish play didn't exactly have many roles for women, but then again, few classical plays did. I tried to imagine her as Lady Macbeth, going mad over the murders she had encouraged, desperately washing her hands of the invisible blood sticking to her skin. She seemed a bit young for it, but Michael's trust in talent and mask was absolute. One of the witches, maybe. At least there would be fewer lines to learn. Or maybe she was a costume or stage designer. I hoped she was a new actor. I had been waiting for one for some time now. She walked up to Michael, her face transformed into an exaggerated grin, before she air-kissed him, continental style. Stage crew rarely felt the need to demonstrate how chummy they are with the director, so her affectations most certainly made her an actor. She was clever, hopefully not too clever. Michael walked her over to the stage and introduced her as a recent London School of Performing Arts graduate, as well as the company's newest member and their Lady Macbeth. He rarely hired anyone straight from school. She had to be special. Weeks went by, it became apparent she was indeed exceptional. Her memory and diction were impeccable. Her face molded itself into an older woman's, into reflections of hope, cunning, despair, dread, and madness, seemingly in the blink of an eye. Initially wary of the newcomer, as well as any acquainted group would be, the cast soon warmed to her. She did so well, both on and off stage, that I worried about my chances with her. It was Ben who went to speak to her the day before the dress rehearsal. That seemed fitting. He'd had the same conversation with me 15 long months ago. Not that I was counting. Would you mind staying behind for five minutes? Sure. What's up, Ben? So there's this thing we all do the night before every premiere, he said, sheepishly looking down at his feet. You know how actors can be a bit superstitious. Yes, I've heard, she laughed, but I'm not. Just hear me out, okay? She noticed the serious expression on his face and nodded. See, there's this legend about an actor way back decades ago. She died in an accident during dress rehearsal, but kind of lingered, I guess. 
At this she huffed and rolled her eyes, but Ben held up his hand and carried on. Ever since, before each premiere, the company holds a ceremony for We bring candles and make a little sacrifice, food, drink, flowers, token gestures, really. The legend says that those who don't will take her place. You're joking, she giggled. No, Ben said, his face now slightly panicky. I remembered that expression, too. No, I'm serious. We're doing it in the break at dress rehearsal tomorrow. I just wanted to let you know so you can bring a candle and and nothing. You're having me on. Make fun of the new girl. Take some photos and post them on Insta. I've heard all about it. Just look at your face. You know I'm on to you. Please just listen. We can't force you, of course, but I'd strongly recommend you join us. We don't want to lose you. And you won't. Don't worry about me. Thanks for the warning, though. And nice try. She laughed, holding up her hand to stop any further discussion and walk towards the exit. Ben stood silently for a minute, wondering what he could have done differently to convince her. The next evening at dress rehearsal, the company went backstage after the second act. Ben gave her one last chance. Oh, come on, give it up already, she groaned, more irritated than amused now. Are you sure? Ben asked as he was obliged to. Yes, yes, I'm sure, she said, rolling her eyes. Ben nodded sadly, then joined the others backstage. As soon as the candles were lit, I felt myself drawn towards her. Each morsel of food, cup of wine, and flower they placed under the picture of the tragic actor whose death had started this chain reaction made me stronger. I let her breathe me in, then felt myself gaining control of her muscles, her nerves, her sensations. I had felt her panic initially, but it subsided, pushed to a little corner of my awareness. At one point, I felt so strong that I simply knew I could banish her from her body for good. And I did. She would have had her chance, too, with the next new actor, the next dress rehearsal. For now, what counted was that I had finally a body again. It was indeed a fantastic body, much younger than my old one. Although I would need a better haircut for the premiere just in case someone wanted to interview me. I walked backstage and joined the rest of the company who were awaiting me with mixed emotions. Nice to be back, I said, and thanks for giving me the main part, Michael grimaced. I hope you've been paying attention and learning the lines. Of course, I said. I had observed the new me closely. Very closely, indeed. Beyond 3x5 at gmail.com Anything you want to say, anything you'd like to hear, anything you don't want to hear. This story is by Teresa Milbrot, the Queen.
A dignified hand pours tea from a teapot. A hand wearing a fingerless glove holds out a teacup. The background is a stained glass window. Nobody appreciates the effort involved with raining down balls of fire on a village. It's skill, it's training, it's a blood sacrifice. And by that, I mean my blood, not someone else's blood. That's cheating. It takes dedication to create this kind of chaos. So, yes, I want one of the survivors to come to my castle seeking vengeance, stand in my throne room and point the tip of their measly sword to my breast. The problem with causing mass chaos and having no witnesses is that you don't know if the mass chaos has its intended educational effect, since nobody is alive to tell you. It's quite complicated, especially after the blood sacrifice and all. So once I've applied the bandage to my arm, I think, well, maybe this was all for shite. Thus, when someone who fancies themselves a hero appears to announce they're going to chop off my head, it's quite gratifying. She has a crutch and a limp, but she's walked like that for some time. I see that much in her eyes. This has been an arduous journey, physical, emotional, spiritual, etc. So I offer a seat I know she will not take, then explain exactly how the village cows, pigs, horses, and chickens had defiled my river for centuries by defecating in it. I appeared to the villagers several times in dreams and then in the guise of an old woman and told them to stop. That didn't do the trick, even after a decade of warnings. I even had my elves build a canal for the waste in the middle of the night, which the farmers and herdsmen completely ignored. And so after that, well, the shite gets real. Fireballs, chaos, etc. Complicating the story always confuses the hell out of a would-be hero, but nobody thinks Earth protectors will get hussy and wipe stuff out. I warn them. I warn them. I warn them again. Because I have elves and fairies under my protection drinking water with cow manure in it, which is quite unsanitary. But this would-be hero... I know she was a teased kid, a survivor, and she might not exactly miss the bullies who were burned to a crisp, but it was her village and she had to stand up for it. No one can say I'm not sympathetic. By this point, she lowered her sword and I asked if she'd like some tea. Maybe, she says, are you going to poison it? I rolled my eyes. Not after you've walked all the way here. That would be rude. Given the fireball rain on her village, I owe her something, despite the cowshite. I am not the villain she imagines me to be, though no one believes it when you say that outright. She has potential, but I won't ask right away about her future plans, thoughts on immortality and feelings on personal blood sacrifice. We can save that for tomorrow, after more tea. S.J.C. 
Schreiber writes, One More Sunrise. Sunrises here are different. Some days I still expect a big watery ball of light creeping over the horizon, washing the hills in orange and red, turning the sky into a palette a messy painter forgot to clean. Instead, I watch a small white spot climb through an abyss devoid of any color, tinting the monochrome landscape around me a slightly brighter shade of red. You'd think I'd been here long enough to know better. 536 days. If I didn't drop a Monday somewhere, I haven't been alone for the entire time. Lee made it until day 479 before he gave up. Burying him turned out to be no small feat, mostly because our equipment didn't include a shovel. The pod is filled with all kinds of amenities, a water recycle station, a laboratory, even a stationary bicycle to keep our muscles working, but no shovel. I had to use one of the mineral drills in a flat piece of metal that had come off during the landing. There is no cross at the burial site. Neither of us was religious. I take a deep breath of canned air and turn around. Earth hangs in the sky in front of me, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away, the signature green and blue hues, the only specks of color in a sea of darkness. The sight sends shivers down my spine. When we got to sent to the moon, there was a room full of people monitoring our every step, guiding us every part of the way. The voices thinned out and I overheard one of the interns saying something about a deadly illness that spread across the world with no cure and a 100% mortality rate. You're better off up there, were the last words through the comms before everything went silent. I'm not sure if my time here has made me patient or numb. There's nothing to wait for, Nothing to look forward to, except one thing. I could open my helmet. It would be over in a few seconds. No long struggle or gasping for air. Movies always get that wrong. My hand wanders to the switch, almost without my intent. Just a click, a turn, a lift. And the last thing I would see would be Earth, my home. Would they call it an act of cowardice or the only logical outcome of my situation? Is there even anyone left on earth to make such an assumption? I stay like this for a minute, then lower my hand. Not today. I want to see at least one more sunrise. To all the mothers-to-be out there, congratulations. I hope you're having a wonderful time and you're anxious, waiting for the baby to come. I found this story especially just for you. It's written by Cameron Hunter, and the title is Spring or Winter's Respite. The stork 
looked convincing, even in detail. It needed to, because the parents came within a few feet of it. It had ruffled synthetic feathers and a large beak made of hard rubber. Dylan missed the old days when they were flown by remote. On return trips, he would fly them as high as possible without risking mechanical failure above the clouds. They didn't require oxygen like real birds. He'd seen some of the best views of his life through their eyes, through their camera lenses feeding to his monitor. He entered the coordinates and checked the route to be certain it wouldn't pass through any severely polluted zones or bad weather. The conveyor belt behind him clicked on and began to roll with a gentle hum. Dylan pressed a button, and the roof, which was on wheels and cables, parted to reveal the noon sun. He went to the end of the conveyor belt, where a stork was perched a few feet above. A little container became visible in the dark tunnel, traveling slowly towards him from the depths of the building. Only the third of the day, he remembered a decade ago, the business had been thriving. The conveyor belt would be backed up 20 feet as they waited for a stork to return. Only 5% of men had a count high enough for fertilization. And most women didn't want to risk pregnancy for a multitude of reasons, the most prominent being the rise in antibiotic-resistant infectious disease. Everyone had wanted a child from the lab, but within one generation the interest had waned. Demand had fallen. No one wanted the responsibility, the burden. No one wanted to subject a life to the unforgiving reality of the world. The container arrived at the end of the belt. Inside was a baby, blanketed and expertly swaddled. A little blonde-haired girl. Her green eyes searched the environment until they met Dylan's. They stared at each other for a moment, and Dylan bent down near the small face to make silly noises, noises he would have been embarrassed if anyone observed him. He gently poked at the rosy cheeks. He made one dumb face after another. Finally, her tiny mouth did something close enough to a smile that he could feel satisfied. Dylan locked the stork's feet around a carbiner attached to the swaddling. It was secured with a fancy digital combination lock. He had already emailed the code to the parents. He turned on the stork and let it sink. Then Dylan looked at her, a compression of such vibrant life, a beginning, unnamed, unblemished, untouched by the world. These were difficult times, but of course she would ever say, eventually, her own opinions, her own opportunities to change things, her own future, and squandered or realized potential. Also, there was a couple, probably young and in love, awaiting her delivery and her delivery of hope and meaning. Dylan took a seat at the monitor, and pressed the button that would launch the stork on its journey. 
With several large strokes of its wings and the assistance of a cleverly hidden propeller in its torso, the stork took to the air. As it was exiting his vision, Dylan heard the baby make a sound of amusement and wonder at taking flight. The next story... See, I need your suggestions. What should I do in between stories so that, you know, you follow what's going on, but you're not going to be annoyed? You are not a player character. I'm sure lots of you have played the games on the computer, but you are not a player character. This is by Greta Hayer. The pattern of your days is unbreakable, though you don't think about breaking it. You are content leaving your thatched cottage at exactly midday, traveling around your village to the same places. You buy the same goods at the same store, marking the same friendly greeting with the shopkeeper. You linger in the same tavern every evening and walk home with your basket full and swinging just as the sky stains the forest trees with purples and golds. You have never thought about leaving. You never needed to. One night, eating your basket of food before the fire, a man enters your house. You do not know him, but you know the dangers of a strange man. You want to scream, to back away. Perhaps you even want to fight. But whatever impulses you have, your body ignores them all. You take another bite of bread. You chew. The man rummages through your house and slips an apple into his backpack. Then one of your kitchen knives. You find you cannot even watch him, only look at your plate. It's like he's not even there. Something clatters to the floor. A shovel. The man has left it in your kitchen. Under the bunches of dried herbs you cannot remember hanging. The man approaches. His clothes are a patchwork of styles and wear. A breastplate that shines almost new. A threadbare cloak. A scuffed shoes and boots of someone who has traveled long. Fine evening, isn't it? Is that all he has to say? He who has barged in and taken what he likes from you? You choke out the only response you seem to have. It is, stranger. He looks at you for a while as though thinking of what he wants to say next. You look back at him. He's full of details. The stubble on his chin, the white crescents along his fingernails, even his hair, which moves ever so slightly, as though the cottage has a draft. The other villagers are drab in your memories, the same clothes that never need repair, the same faces unchanging. Seen anything strange around these parts, the man asks. You, you want to scream. I have never seen anything quite as strange as you, but your mouth moves unbidden. Never in town, no, but if you're looking for strange, the caves in the woods are said to be haunted. Are they? You have never been to the caves. Your information surprises you, and the man turns to leave. Not even a goodbye. You want to slump against your chair in relief. 
but your back is stiff, unyielding. You finish your meal after he leaves, and in the morning you return to your pattern and tell no one of the man. But you start remembering the strangers. A man with a mask, filigree gold work, like nothing you have ever seen. Another whose pack bristles with swords. A woman in red who jostles against you on your walk home, steals your food, and then jostles you again, now clearly on purpose, laughing. You want to stop her to defend yourself, but you stumble and stumble again. You cannot even lift your arms to protect your face. The mudstains have vanished from your skirts by the time you return home, and you sit at your table as though you are eating, but there is nothing to eat. Another man comes, this time when you are at the tavern, drinking the same drink you have drank since you began to remember things. He asks you question after question. You are compelled to your answers, the words unchangeable, And when he asks if you've seen anything strange, you give him the information about the caves in a cheerful, helpful tone, so opposite to the role of confusion within you. You want to ask him about what he has seen and where he is from and why the air shimmers around him with a force-like possibility. But you don't have the option, and even if you did, you don't know how to speak like that. He thanks you and rises, and you cannot help but notice the fine lines on his hands, even a pair of veins that trace along the backs like blue rivers. Your hands are soft and almost uniform in color, your fingernails all but blending into your fingers. The man doesn't try to steal anything and moves to sit beside your neighbor, demanding all the same answers from them. That night, though you lay in bed, you don't sleep. You refuse to. You wish you had followed the stranger out of town. You wished you had realized that was what you wanted. When the sun rises and you're pulled from your bed, you fight the pattern. You need to walk to town, like you always do, but you turn toward the woods. The morning light dances on leaves, green and dark, and threaded with mist like gossamer. It doesn't seem haunted. It seems new. Your pattern calls out to you, simple and comfortable. You need to go to the store anyway. You might as well have a drink at the tavern. Maybe tomorrow you will take a step toward the trees. Maybe then you will choose what to say. Thank you for listening.